I want to continue on this morning speaking as we have been speaking over the past, past few weeks on living a first-rate Christian life. And uh, this is probably something we could talk about forever because uh, living a first-rate Christian life is an everyday thing. But we started off a few weeks ago uh, starting and we asked the question at the very beginning, why do we settle or so often settle for second, base, second best in our Christian life? Why do we do that? It may be good enough for us, but the real question that we must ask and must be diligently seeking the answer to is this. Is it good enough for Jesus? Maybe good enough for me. I may be comfortable in a second-rate Christian life because it doesn't challenge me too much. Because I come to church and I do my thing, then I go out and do my other thing, and as long as it doesn't challenge me too much, I'm pretty comfortable with a second-rate Christian life. But the question, though, really, really must be asked. And you are the only one that can ask it and really evaluate your life with it. But is it good enough for Jesus? Because Jesus will be the ultimate judge we must be concerned with. That we are living for him and not him living for us. We must be pleasing him. More than, he, more than him pleasing us? That's the question. And that's the deception that the enemy quite often will try to uh, push on us in that unless he's pleasing us, then he's not worth serving. And that's a deception and that's a lie. The second week we talked about the reality of the spiritual world and how important it is for us to understand that the physical world that we see and live in is but a passing glimmer. It's going to fade and it's going to go away. Everything we sense with our five senses will burn and pass away. The only thing that will last is of the spirit world. So we must concentrate our efforts then in the things that will last. Doesn't that just make common sense? Why would I want to put all my effort and all my time into something that I know is not going to be there tomorrow? Rather, why wouldn't I spend my time and my investment and in things that I know will be there forever? It just makes sense. So we need to think about that, and we need to understand that our efforts, our concentrated efforts, must be put on the spirit world. And we talked about how real the spirit world is. More real, in fact, than the physical world. Even though you're sitting in physical chairs, you're not sitting in a spiritual chair, you're sitting in a physical chair. The spirit world around us is more real, it's more vibrant, it's more colorful, it's more alive, it's more powerful than the physical. And then last week we spoke on the first and foremost, I'm really not sure how to describe this. Is, is it an attitude? Is it a choice? Is it an action? Is it a thing? It's submission. What is it? Or is it just a submissive lifestyle? Whatever adjective or description you want to put on that word submission, that is the first and foremost thing that we must apply in our life because as long as I'm living for Mike, well, you're not living for Mike, as long as I'm living for Mike, as long as you're living for whatever your name is and submission doesn't set in, understand then really you're not a Christian and neither am I. If I am not submitted to Jesus, I really am not a Christian. I may want to call myself a Christian, 
I may want to have that title, but if I am not submitted in my life to Jesus Christ, I am not a Christian. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. We're going to talk more about the areas in our life that we need to work on in order for us to continue to walk in a first-rate Christian life. Because that's what Jesus is coming back for, first-rate Christians. He's not coming back for second-rate Christians. He's coming back for first-rate Christians. What's interesting is as I was thinking about this this week, some of the engineer came out in me, and I started calculating out some things. We all know that we spend a very small portion of our lives in church. Yet, when we examine our spiritual life, we all know that, well, whether we know it or agree with it or not, the most important aspect of living is spiritual. Just for the reasons we just talked about a few minutes ago. So I calculated out the time, the percentage of, of time of our hours per week we spend in church versus other things. Follow me on this, if you will. We spend in church, I figured, about 1.2 to 1.5% of our hours weekly. And we spend about 13% of the hours per week eating. We spend about 33% and about 33% in both sleeping and working. 33% sleeping about 33% working, and about 20% in pleasure of whatever type we want. So if we are basing our destiny, our eternal destiny, on the spiritual things that we do, we're only spending 1.2 to 1.5% of our weekly time in a church setting. And I say a church setting because... This is the hour and a half or so we spend on Sunday morning, and maybe if you come on Wednesday nights, that gives you the 1.5%. <laughs> so the whole point of that is this, is that if this is all your time spending on focusing on Jesus is on Sunday morning, it's, I'm asking you the question, is it good enough? I am not going to put myself in judge of that. Because if I put myself in judge of that, then I put myself over Jesus. Jesus is the judge. I'm asking you, and I'm seeing my whole ministry change a little bit, in that my perspective of why I'm here is never, maybe it was, I don't think it was, I, I hope that it wasn't, but I know it's not today. It's never to condemn or judge. But I am calling out the Word of God. And I'm asking you to self-evaluate your life so that you then don't rest on a man's opinion, whether it's me or any other pastor. Don't go to any man and say, can I do this? Can I get away with this? Is this okay to do? When you do that, you're putting yourself under judgment of a man. Understand that you are going to be judged by Jesus. God has given Jesus the keys of judgment. And so when you need to evaluate what you do, evaluate it against the word, of the, the word of God, and then understand that you're going to be standing someday before Jesus, and let him be the judge of your life. Not a man, or not a church, or not any organization. So when we look at ourselves and when we call ourselves Christians, we need to be careful then that we are, we are not just depending upon this less than 2% of our time 
formulating our Christian experience. If this is all there is to it, then I have to ask you the question, is it enough in your life or not? That's why we're going to talk about living a first-rate Christian life happens tomorrow and happens Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, not just on Sunday mornings. Very important that we think about that so that we don't let this become the focus and the definition of who we are. Jesus concentrated so much on living a first-rate Christian life. He didn't call it that. You never see that in the Word of God anywhere, but yet when you understand the definition of what Jesus was saying, it equates out to living a first-rate Christian life. Living for God is not just coming to church on Sunday mornings and forgetting about Him the rest of the week. We must discipline ourselves to think about God and to live a life with continual actions for him if we're ever going to be a first-rate Christian life. James chapter 1, verse 22 tells us, Do not merely listen to the world. I'm sorry. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's so interesting that he ties in listening to the word of God and deceiving something or someone. Those typically don't go together. If you're listening to the Word of God or studying the Word of God, why would you want to put in that same sentence a deception question? Because so easily we can justify ourselves. We come into church. We sing some songs. We have this great experience here that happens. And then we deceive ourselves because tomorrow we go live in the world and we're not any different. That's why it says, do what the Word of God says. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In James chapter 2, verse 17, James also says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So I can say I have a lot of faith. That's nice. But if you're not putting any words to it, I mean any action to it, if it's all words, if you're not putting any feet to the action, to the, to the faith, then it's dead faith. Dead faith doesn't do any good for anyone, does it? We've been talking about on Wednesday nights on spiritual warfare, and this past Wednesday night was the shield of faith. And how important it is that we must take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. The key to it is... It's not just having faith in faith. It's having faith in Jesus. And then what's even more important is I can have a lot of faith in Jesus, but if I don't pick it up and use it, what good is it? If I was in a warfare situation or if I was um, being um, shot at by arrows, someone with a bunch of arrows or shooting at me, and if I had a shield, the shield wouldn't do any good for me if it was laying at my feet. I would have to pick up the shield and cover as much of my body as I could with the shield before that shield's going to have any benefit to me. Correct? So it's the same thing with faith. We, in the shield of faith, we can have faith, but if we're not using it, if we're not applying it, then it has no value to us. So therefore, we have to put effort in with our belief. How do we do this? Well, this is where it gets pretty very personal because it's up to you and the Holy Spirit to get together to figure out how He wants you to live your life. This is not where we have a formula to figure it out. The Word of God gives us clear direction and gives us clear instruction, but I'm unique and you're unique and the Lord works through you uniquely 
and he works through me uniquely. So I can't give you that formula other than the fact is that I can say you read the word and you live by the word. And when you feel the Holy Spirit giving you a direction, then live in it and do it and work in it. Last week we talked about how important submission is and how important it is that we have to, uh, uh, that it's required for us to receive. Not just a knowing or a believing that brings salvation, but it's it's the act of submitting to our lives that we receive the power of forgiveness. Understand that Satan knows and believes in Jesus as well. James chapter 2, verse 19, just further down in that same chapter, it says, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Or as another translation puts it, they shake with fear. The demons understand Jesus. They understand him. But they are not saved by by that understanding. They're not saved by a knowledge of Jesus. And neither will you be saved with a knowledge of Jesus. You're only saved when you apply him through the grace of God and apply him to your life to forgive you of your sins. So we have to put some effort into those areas or they are of no value to us. That's not that's kind of contrary to what the world would say obviously and even some even some real popular church preaching and teaching and, and doctrines they just kind of walk in and say if you know Jesus if you know who he is you're good. Well, I'm challenging us all today. It's more than just knowing who he is. It's an application of him in our life. And it's applying him in our life, and it's a continual daily walking out of him in our life. How do we do this? Number one, we need to love God with everything that we are and everything that we have. Number one, we're to love God. We talked about submission last week. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Mark, if you go to Mark chapter 12, verse 30, he adds one area, one other area as well. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So the the gospel writers here are all-encompassing. They are not letting anyone have any wiggle room here at all when it comes to loving God and submitting. We are to love God with everything that we have, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So what that tells me then is why do I then look for ways to give God less? Stop looking for that. Stop looking for ways to give God less in our life. Rather, look, look for ways to prove to him that I do love him with everything. Give him the best. We spoke last week about the devil and that how he has to flee from us as we submit ourselves to God. Now understand, the devil is not stupid. He understands. If we give God the second-rate areas of our life, in other words, we give him the leftovers when we have time, when we give him the leftover area of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, don't you think that that's an obvious statement to the devil that we really aren't submitted to God? How do you expect then your prayers to be answered if you're not fully obedient? If you're playing the game, the devil knows it too. (laughs) And so you have no fear or respect of the enemy when you're playing the game that way. Think about it. Think about it. He knows the rules. The devil knows the rules. He knows that he has to be submissive to a godly person. And don't think for a minute that if you're living a purposefully compromising lifestyle, 
that you will have any power over the enemy. He has no fear of respect of you. He only fears and respects the power of Jesus. And if that's in you, he respects you and he fears you. But if it's not in you, then you are nothing to the enemy. He will, eat, he will run over you and he will eat your lunch and you will never be victorious in your Christian walk. You will constantly be struggling. You will constantly be frustrated because you haven't submitted to God fully. And until you submit to God fully, you have no respect of the enemy. So he will eat your lunch every day. He will frustrate you and he will make you totally inept. Now, doesn't that sound positive? <laughs> no, it doesn't. But we don't have to play the game. We can, we can submit to Jesus. We don't have to play the game of deception. So let me ask you the question one more time before I move on to the next point. Do I love God or not? I mean, do I really love God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength? Then if I do, then I have to prove it. I have to prove it. How do we prove it? Okay, number two, we prove it by putting God first in our life and in all our choices. Chap, uh, Matthew chapter 6, 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given. I have to first seek Jesus. That's submission. I first seek him and his righteousness. Not, not just I'm going to seek him while I'm in church and then I'm going to live the way I want to on Monday. That's not righteousness. Righteousness is I'm going to seek God today and I'm going to seek him tomorrow and I'm going to seek his righteousness on Wednesday and on Thursday night when I'm out with my gang, without my friends, when I'm picking who I'm going to hang with. I'm seeking God's righteousness all the time. I don't have options here where I can let his righteousness go for a little while and then still think that he's going to bless me. We really have to start understanding that God's rules are rules and they are conditional rules. He has the opportunity and he has the right to be conditional. I don't. He is the rule maker and I am the rule liver. I have to live by the rules that he applies. So to really understand the significance of this verse, we really must read it in context because Jesus is speaking about numerous things that are real issues in people's lives, in the physical world. This just isn't pie-in-the-sky type teaching without any relevant context. Jesus is very factual here. He, varies, he does have a grasp of reality. He's not just living in a, his own little dream world. He understands that we have physical problems, we have physical needs when he says this. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 and let's start reading in verse 25. And it says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much, much more valuable than they? Now, I'll stop here for a minute, because I've got a good word, word picture in my mind over this one. Have you ever seen a bird sit in a tree and watch the bugs and the seeds come to the bird? Have you ever seen a worm crawl up the trunk of a tree to the robin so the robin could eat the worm? 
No. No, you, what you see is the birds of the air working aggressively to acquire and gain God's provision for them. The birds have to go get the bugs. They have to go get the seeds. The old say, saying is the, um, that the, the early bird gets the worm. It's the first robin to the grass that gets the unwary worm. It's not the one sitting in a tree saying, God, if you're really going to provide for me, then bring me the worm. In other words, we know that God's provision, he is the provider, and we're not saying that it's in us that we are provided, we're not the provider. But we have to go after the provision. We do have effort to do. We do have to work. We do have to apply our faith. So we just have to know then that God's sustenance is for us. Every day he has provision for us. But I have to do my part. And I think that's where some people get a little bit confused. Let's go on reading. Verse 27. Who, by, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to, this life, to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, how quickly time flies, and the things of this world, the physical nature, will flee. It will flee, it will be burned, and it will go. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So with God understanding your needs, he understands all the physical things we need to have. He's not saying you don't need to have them. He's not saying you don't need to have that car. You don't need to have that house. He's not saying that at all. All he's saying is don't seek those things. Seek me first. And when, I, when you seek me and my righteousness, I will provide those things for you as you diligently do your part in this life. As you work in this life, as you apply yourself to jobs and, and income and, and education and school, and as you live in this life, I will provide. But all he's saying is keep your perspective in the right thing. Keep your perspective on godly things, on his righteousness. Otherwise, we're no different than the pagans. Otherwise, we're no different than the world out there that is seeking all of the stuff. And if we get our eyes on that, then we're no different than they are. And that's exactly what God's trying to stop us from. He wants us to keep that long-term results of things that last forever in our mindset so that as we do walk through this life, we're not focusing, we're not building our, our happiness and our joy on what we have in this life. We will use the things of this life to accomplish long-term benefits. We will use that to accomplish the spiritual things that God wants us to accomplish. So we have to keep our priorities in order. Number three, this is one that will help us with this. Love God over money or worldly possessions. Now, we've just talked about and established that God is the provider of everything that we need to live in this life as we seek him with our proper attitudes and our proper priorities. But we have to remind, be reminded sometimes that we are to always be careful to love God more than what he provides. And I know this may seem very basic and very simple, but I know in my life, and I'm probably not much different than you, but how quickly I forget where my blessings come from. How quickly I forget... So I have to constantly remind myself 
where my blessings come from. And why were they given to me in the first place? Are they for my consumption today? Or am I to use the blessings that God's given me so that I can create more of an enduring purpose for later? How do I use the blessings? How do I use my money? How do I use my resources? How do I use my time? Is it for me to consume on my own pleasures? Or is it for me to invest in godly kingdoms? How do I use them? Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 gives us a good instruction on that. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I know that at times this is hard for us to do. It's hard for us to think that I have to give up things or I have to work on things that are spiritual when I have all these problems in front of me today physically. This is the question I have. Do you believe that Jesus will take care of you? Do you believe this or not? Because if you believe that your reward in heaven is real, then you're on the right path. Now put that belief in action and stop living for yourself in the here and now. Your belief isn't going to do you any good unless you put it into action. You must believe and then put it into action. You must be able to understand that what I struggle with today, yes, is a real struggle. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not taking that away. But it's not the thing that's going to last. That is going to pass just like the good things pass. The good and the bad will all pass. The Gospel of Luke talks to us about our attitudes towards money and our use and dependence on it. And it's a great discussion towards our stewardship attitude, meaning we really don't own it anyway. It's all God's and we're just stewards of it. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, it tells us, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if, you do, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? For no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, this is one I think that can, we can talk about for quite a while. And I would ask the question, do you believe this? Do you believe that you cannot serve both God and money? Or do you believe that you can figure it out, that you can handle it? How would you rate your ability to manage your love for money and your love for God? Do you think you can? If you love God, does that mean that you can't have money? If that's the case, to prove our love for God that we can't have any money, then the poor person or the homeless person or the person who doesn't have any money must love God more than me or more than you if you have money. Does that make any sense? Is that true? And this is where I think the devil is very subtle in his lying and how he messes people up. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 and 15 says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. 
What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Understand that Jesus is not about money. He's about the heart. He always has been and he always will be. He doesn't care about the money. He's caring about your heart. So what's, let's continue this a little bit more. So if he wants my heart and he knows that my natural man's heart is is the carnal man is about money and about physical things, then he has to deal with my heart issues before I can really be a first-rate Christian life. I have to understand what my heart issues are. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and in many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Here it is. It's all wrapped up for us. God wants us to be content with what he blesses us with. He wants us to be content with what he blesses us with. Yes, he's concerned about my daily life. And it's okay if I have money and can can join my life. I need money, in fact. But it's when we can't seem to have enough, that's the problem. When I can't seem to get enough, that's where I'm having a problem putting my perspective or my priorities right. You see, it's not the money that's the problem. It's the love of money. And I think we all know that. But God uses money in this world to accomplish what he needs to be done. People are blessed financially so that they can give financially. We have to have money to spend to take care of our homes. We have to have money to take care of this building. We have to have money to sponsor missionaries. We have to have money to do a lot of good things in this world. Without money, we can't do a whole lot. So it's not the money, is it? But it's the love of money. And the problem comes when people who have money or not love the money. We often think that this passage is only for the rich people who have lots of money, but, and they must really love it because they have so much of it. But here's the thing that I think is more of a problem. It's for those that don't have money that love it just as much. It doesn't, you don't have to be rich to love money. <laughs> I think that's pretty obvious when you look at the casinos and when you look at uh, the, the gambling that goes on with the lottery. People that don't have enough money to pay their bills are taking the money that they have and buying lottery tickets, thinking that if I can just get that winner, I'll have it all put together. If I can just get that winner, I don't have, all my problems will go away because I'll have more money. So they have just as much of a problem loving money as the person that has got the biggest yacht in the world or the biggest airplane. So it's not how much money you have that, that constitutes your love for money. It's your love for money. So that's where I think it hits us all right in the face. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 through 15 tells us that. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. And I know that we've 
talked quite a bit. This, this discussion on money has gone on a little bit long-winded here, but it's important that we need to understand that, that the love of money is so damaging. It is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with money griefs. When we allow the pursuit of happiness to become our goal, then that can become a justification of doing whatever it takes to get by and stay happy. This is a simple term for self-indulgence. The more we want, the more we allow ourselves to indulge in any and every activity that we think will get us more and make us happy. Dr. Meg Meeker, in her book, Strong Fathers and Strong Daughters, says this about the pursuit of girls making the pursuit of happiness one of their motivational goals. But I think this can be applied more than just for girls. I think it can be applied for us as well. And here's what she says. Here's what happens. The more we self-indulge, the more selfish we become, the more inward-focused we become, and in turn, the more unhappy we become in our pursuit of happiness. There becomes no limit to our wants, and these wants never ultimately satisfy the deeper need we all have. So happiness stays just out of your reach. The paradox is this, is that happiness is truly found only when it is routinely denied. In other words, when I... And when I have self-control, and when I am contented with God's blessing, and when I'm not being always caught up in the race, the rat race of getting more, I've got to have the bigger whatever it is. I've got to have the nicer car. I've got to have the bigger home. I've got to have the bigger paycheck. I've got to have the bigger boat. I've got to have the faster airplane. I've got to have the best golf equipment. Whatever it is, when I can learn to be content with what God has blessed me with, and then take the, the excess, the surplus that I have, and then properly be a steward of it, that is the key to happy life. That is the key to life fulfilled in this life as well as eternally. Love of money is selfish and self-serving. Love of God is putting others first and pleasing to God. Totally different directions with totally different outcomes. Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked a lot about it, and he didn't have any problem talking about it because he used it as a measuring stick of what was really in the heart of a man. He would look at that and look at the way a man gives, and he would be able to apply that into his heart and his life and know really who's in control, the pocketbook or the heart. Is God in control of the pocketbook? So in our day today, if Jesus used money as an indicator, then why do we not as well use it as an indicator? And what I'm saying is that we don't monitor your giving. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what I said before. You need to be your own self-monitor in your heart. How, well, how easy is it for you to give money to the church? How easy is it for you? Are you a tither? Are you? If you're not, if you struggle with giving then that might be an indicator that your heart may not be really submitted to God. As we conclude today, and as we start to wrap this up, a first-rate Christian will be a joyful tither. He will be a joyful giver. There's no question about it. When you tithe, when you give, God will bless you. And I say that because it says so in the book of Malachi. Jack, if you'd come, please. Jack, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, this is the one time 
This is the one time that God gives us the instruction, gives us the ability, gives us the choice to test him. He never says any other time to test him in any other thing besides giving. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Does this mean that, this, that we will be rich? Yes. Yes, it does. Yes. We are rich in the things that matter. If I'm a faithful giver, if I'm a faithful tither, I will be rich. Why would the Lord give me an instruction to test him if he's not going to come through on it? If the Lord says, test me, believe me, believe the word, he will come through on it. So, yes, I will be rich. The question is, how do you define rich? The question comes back to you again. How do you define it? If you define it in material wealth and material gain so that I can go spend it on what I want to spend it on, maybe, you're, maybe you may be mistaken now. But if I'm defining rich as eternal blessings, as a fulfilled life, as a life that's going to have the peace of God reigning in my life, yes, I will be rich when I am a faithful tither. That's a fact. It's a fact of God's word. I will be rich. You can be rich if you tithe. This is not about the church wanting your money. Listen to me very closely. This is not about the church wanting your money. This is about God wanting to give into your life. But he is conditional in that. And like I said before, he has the right to be conditional. It's his money in the first place. And he's blessed you with some of it. Now, are you going to hoard it? Are you going to keep it to yourself? Or are, you, are you, or are you freely going to give it back to him? And I know this has been one of the biggest problems with people in churches because they, people say the church, all they want is your money. Well, I'll tell you what. That's the devil big time telling you a lie. The churches need money, no question about it, just like you need money. But if that's, if that's as deep as it goes... If that's all you hear in that message, then you're being robbed of God's blessings. Then you're being robbed of what God wants to give you because he doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. But the heart and the money go together so many times they go hand in hand. And so when you can freely give of your money, it's a proof to you that he has your heart. So again... A first-rate Christian, Christian, a first-rate Christian life is exemplified by a cheerful giver. It is the proof to you that you've made it to that regard in that area. So I challenge you with that. And again, I'm, I'm not judging you. Like I said at the beginning, we are not judging you. We are not condemning you. I am just raising these questions so that you can self-evaluate yourself. I gave you a questionnaire last week. How many people took the time to read through it? How many people have added things to your list? I continue to make that a living document. I continue to take that list and then look for areas of your life where you are submitting or not submitting. 
Because you're, you're going to struggle in areas, I know you are, because you're human. You're no different than me or anyone else. If I struggle, you struggle. And if you struggle, I struggle. We just don't struggle in the same things. But we struggle in submission. So I challenge you this morning, add to your list. Pray over that list. Give that list to God. Work on it. Do not settle for second best in your life. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25 says this. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? I think we could end every church service with that scripture. Because isn't that such a good reminder to all of us? It's not about who dies with the most toys. It's about who dies with the most joys of heaven. Who dies with making Jesus the happiest? Who dies to, and the only way you do that is to die to yourself. You must take up your cross daily, and that is a daily exercise, a daily walk. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But the promise is there. The hope is there. The facts are there. The facts are on your side. Take out the emotion if you have to. And just read the Word of God just from a, a book of promises. And then let God sink it into your heart. And He will bring the emotion. He will bring the peace he will bring the happiness, but you must, you must read the Word. And you must make it more than 1.2% of your daily walk. If you're not letting that sink in, if daily you're not in the Word, if daily you're not praying, then I'm telling you right now, there's no way in the world you're going to be a first-rate Christian. No different than if I wanted to be an athlete, I have to train every day. And I have to eat good food every day. The only way you're going to be a Christian man or woman is by you reading the Bible and praying. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And I know right now that the facts are that you're sitting on a throne and Jesus is sitting on your right-hand side. I know that. That's what the Bible says. And I also know that Jesus is interceding for me. That's what the Bible says. I may not feel that every day, but I know that that's what's happening in the heavens right now. That Jesus is interceding for the saints. And I am one of those saints because I've asked you into my life. I've asked you to forgive me of my sin. And now when you look at me, you see a righteous man because of the blood of Jesus. Now, Lord, I know there are others in this building that are the same way. And I thank you for that. We don't, we're not proud in that. We're not boasting in that. We're just knowing the facts. And Lord, we take those facts then and we apply them to the enemy. And we say, devil, as we submit ourselves to God and we seek after his righteousness, enemy, you have to flee. You cannot stand in the same place that I'm standing because I'm standing on holy ground. 
I'm standing on holy ground, devil, and you have no right to be here. So, Lord, I pray that that is the heart cry of everyone in this room, that as we go home today to our homes, that we make that a heart cry every day, that we just don't worry about that on Sunday morning or Wednesday if we come on Wednesdays, but we make that our daily walk every day, that we make our life holy before you, holy before the enemy, that he cannot stand in the presence because of who you are in my life. Lord, challenge us, I pray. And I pray, Lord, as we go to our homes today, Lord, that this sinks in. Some of this we can remember tomorrow, hopefully, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit will bring it back to us and make it new and alive every day in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. If anyone would like to pray, we'd be more than happy to pray with you. Thank you for the day. Have a great day. Be blessed in Jesus' name.